0: Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer.
1: And I'm Jim Elliott.
0: And today we're joined by Patrick Page. Hello, Patrick. Hey, how are you? Good to see you again. Very good to see you too. Thank you for being here.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. Patrick Page, as a young child, watched his father perform Shakespeare at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon, and the theater bug took hold. His career on stage is long and illustrious, so I'm not going to do the whole thing. We'll keep it focused on Shakespeare, mostly. Uh, his Broadway credits include Hades and Hadestown, many others including Declas Brutus and Julius Caesar and Scar and the Lion King. Other New York credits include Cymbeline and Cymbeline for the New York Shakespeare Festival, the Cardinal and the Duchess of Malfi at the Red Bull Theater, Merle and Richard II, directed by Stephen Burkoff at the Public Theater. Patrick is an associate artist of the Old Globe Theater where his roles included Mal- Malvolio. He's an affiliated artist with the Shakespeare Theater Company in D.C. where roles include Prospero, Coriolanus, Macbeth, Claudius, and Iago. He has been acknowledged as one of America's foremost classical actors by the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Other regional credits include the six years at the Utah Shakespeare Festival, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, La Jolla Playhouse, Paper Mill, Seattle Repertory Theater, Longmore Theater, and I can go on and on and on. Leading roles include Hamlet, Henry V, Macbeth, Iago, Coriolanus, Cymbeline, Mercutio, Benedict Prospero, Menonias, Oberon, Richard III, Autolycus, Jaques, Talbot, Mark Antony, Bruce, Richard II, and many, many more. Welcome, Patrick. This is an amazing, amazing time to talk to you. Oh, thank you. My first question is, you seem to have played a lot of villains in your time. And you have an upcoming one-man show called All the Devils Are Here, How Shakespeare Invented the Villain. Is there a correlation between the two?
2: <laughs> Absolutely, there's a correlation. Thank you for giving me the plug, by the way. Yeah. Um, i'm not quite sure when this podcast airs but uh, we filmed the show for the shakespeare theater company in washington dc and it tickets should be coming available mid-january and um, then i believe it will begin to be available to the public at the end of january and i believe it will be available through like july so yeah the look the reason i became interested in acting finally i mean the the first thing that attracts every actor is is the attention. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Right. Okay. So that's what attracts all of us at first. But then, along the way, you have to find something more meaningful and substantial than that, or or you simply won't keep at it because the. Although the rewards are quite wonderful, the downside is is absolutely horrific. The number of times you're rejected, the number of times you are criticized. And when I say you're criticized, I don't mean your book or your painting or your poem. I mean you, the yeah. way you look, the way your voice sounds. You know. So I think the, you have to find something more than the kind of look at me aspect of it if you're gonna keep going. And for me, It was always my interest in in human behavior and why people did the things they did, why they behave the way they behave. And when in college, I didn't major in psychology, but I took as many psychology classes as I could because that was an enormous interest of mine and, and continues to be. And one of the reasons I'm so interested in studying English literature again is like, why do people behave the way they do? Why do they make these mistakes? Why do we harm one another? Why do we love one another when it can be so torturous to love one another? So for me, antisocial behavior, behavior in which people cause harm to one another, which is what villains do after all, was always really, really fascinating for me. And I just was attracted to those characters. Part of it may also be the fact that the, I think the first real, real success I had as an actor was playing Richard the Third, And by that, I don't mean that I was successful with the audience because I had had successes with audiences before that because actually you don't have to be a very good actor to have successes with an audience. So I was a, a, a terrible actor, but I was very good at manipulating an audience to laugh. It was horrible acting, but I was able to give an audience the kind of coarse acting that they shouldn't want, but sometimes do. And so... When I say it was my first success, what I mean is it was the first time I think I ever thought my own work was good. And I connected with the character. and I connected with his brokenness, both physical and psychological brokenness. And there was something about being able to be the advocate for that man, being able to stand in his shoes, being able to look through his eyes. And although the audience would then see... A man who does terrible things, they might also see why the man did terrible things, not excuse those terrible things, but understand how someone might behave in that way.
1: And certainly humanizing a villain upgrades the Tragedy or the drama or the conflict because you're not up against a two-dimensional person You're up against an actual person and that that complicates things.
2: Yeah, and I think it's you know with the, the show I'm doing now. I, I frankly think that looking at the Nuances of a person's life looking at the causes of what we might call evil is really important because we're in a period where people tend to I, I even see a lot of intelligent and even decent people on social media calling other people pigs or assholes. In other words, reducing them to animals or parts of the body, or they call people rats, they call people scum. And these are often intelligent and otherwise kind people who are doing this. And it's funny because we're in this period where in television, the anti-hero, the person who does things that are wrong, but whom we nevertheless root for and understand is kind of the the central character in modern television. That's Tony Soprano, that's Walter White, that's Marty, I've forgotten his last name on on, on Ozark. Yeah,
1: Don Draper. That's Don
2: Draper. And it's, it's just so dichotomous that we would have this thing on television, which is helping us understand how otherwise good people might do bad things. And yet in our public life, We tend to separate people into categories of good and bad, depending on our political stance. So, my show is hopefully a way of delving a little bit deeper into that. And finally, I guess the takeaway for the show for me is that in all of the instances where I've played bad people who do bad things, I've had to find that in myself. So, I've had to find a Richard in myself, I've had to find a Claudius. I have Claudius's moral cowardice. I have Richard's ambition. I have Shylock's thirst for revenge. I I have Brutus's self-righteousness. I have all these things in me. And unless I can look at them, I, I think I'm in grave danger of projecting them onto other people and behaving in ways that I would be ashamed of.
0: Well, this is a fascinating subject. Now, at the risk of playing devil's advocate, and I don't mean—I don't mean to do that, but—but but I think I think I'm coming around to the idea, just in my own life, that there there are people who are incomplete in some way. I mean, it's not just that. I love that all, word. That's that's great it's not just that we all contain multitudes and and we contain we contain the aspects of what it is to be human in different proportions but i believe that there are people who simply are incomplete in that they that they may lack the ability to be empathetic for example or they may simply lack humility or they may lack shame in some fundamental way and that makes it impossible to relate to them on those
2: terms yeah you're you're absolutely right and that's and that's actually sort of the climax of my show or it's nearly the climax of my show you know the the very first villain let us call him with a conscience in the history of literature or art is Claudius Shakespeare made a couple of stabs at it early on he tried to give Richard III a, a, a speech of conscience and it's and you can sort of see the horse falling over the as it tries to leap over the Whatever that thing is called, the horse's leap over. And the conscience speech isn't isn't convincing in Richard Third. But you know, Shakespeare was twenty twenty-seven when he wrote that. So let's give him let's give him a break. But Claudius's conscience is complete, absolute. His speech of conscience is so overwhelming and so true that Shakespeare had gotten to the point where he could write a man who was as toxic as any character ever written. Indeed. Claudius's toxicity runs through the whole of Denmark, which is the world of the play. Denmark is rotten because Claudius is rotten. It's a blood disease. Mm-hmm. His evil is. And yes, he is overcome with conscience, unable to act on that conscience, unable to change his behavior. But he does have a conscience. Immediately after which, Shakespeare says, is it possible that some people have no conscience whatsoever? And the answer is Iago. And Iago has no conscience. And I played Iago twice, and the first time was a real failure for me. Now, it wasn't a failure for the audience. It is impossible to fail as Iago. You know, my Aunt Eileen could play Iago, and she would have a success <laughs> with the audience. Because the, 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 the role is written in such a way. You can't, you can't fail at the role of Iago, and you can't fail at the role of Cyrano de Bergerac. They're the two roles you cannot fail in with the audience. But the first time I failed because I, I didn't I didn't believe in what I did. The director and I were somewhat at odds about the meaning of why Iago did the things he did. The reason I chose for why Iago did the things he did was wrong. But the next time I did it, which was in Washington with Michael Kahn, I had just played Macbeth for him. And he asked me to play Iago on the opening night of the Macbeth before the reviews came out, which I thought was quite bold of him. <laughs> uh, and the first question he asked me, and it was a year before we were to go into rehearsal, was, do you think Iago is a sociopath? And I said, I don't know, because I don't know what that is. So I began a year of study in which I read everything I could, including the DSM and all the clinical material, but also wonderful books for the layman, and some books that were obviously not for the layman, in, in addition to watching hundreds and hundreds of hours of youtube videos of psychopaths being interviewed or giving testimony and this is an amazing tool that we have now you know that that we didn't have growing up that i did not have growing up i always tell my acting students in terms of research you're just you know what i had was the dewey decimal system they've got google you know but so i did that and it was a really 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 hard hurdle for me the hurdle of what garrett is saying which is some people have no conscience whatsoever. Conscience, you know, the the Elizabethans for them the word conscience and consciousness were synonyms. So when Hamlet says, "Conscience does make cowards of us all," he's he is saying that in a sense that our sense of right and of, of what is right and wrong cripples us. But actually, that's not true. If we know something is to be absolutely right, we can act upon that right. If we know something is absolutely wrong, we can act upon that or avoid that action what hamlet's really saying is consciousness makes cowards of us all you know my my little dog georgie she has no trouble carrying out any stupid action because she has no consciousness (laughs) and she certainly has no guilt she knows how to behave if she's caught but if she's not caught she's not feeling any guilt about it so she doesn't have consciousness in the sense that we do and it's the human thing that stops us in our tracks right Claudius says, I stand, uh, as a man to double business bound, I stand in pause where I should first begin and both neglect. That thing of like, there are two alternatives and I don't know which one to take. That consciousness, the fact that we split ourselves into two beings and have two opposing views of what might happen, we're able to see two roads, that cripples our action. I mean, that's what Hamlet's about largely. But to imagine someone who doesn't have that, who doesn't have the ability to feel guilt, shame, who has no empathy, that was a really, really hard thing for me as an actor to accept. And my guess is it was a hard thing for Shakespeare as a playwright to accept. Mm -hmm. Remember, we're talking now 1605. Shakespeare had been writing for a long time. He'd been writing for at least 12 years by the time he gets to Othello. And he's observed a lot of human behavior. And he's not like us. He's not like us. He's a different species than we are. When he sees human behavior, he understands it down to the root. He has an ability to get behind the person's eyes and see out through them. So to accept, clearly having met a person or people who had no conscience and no empathy, Shakespeare was unable to write one. And once I had that diagnosis, Michael's question was, is he one? I studied, 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 eventually made the diagnosis. Yes, he is one. Once I had that correct diagnosis for Iago, I'm afraid playing the character was, I feel ashamed saying so, but it was terribly easy. Iago's the only character I've ever played where you don't have the anxiety before the show of that you may not feel what is necessary. Because every actor knows when you go out and play Cyrano or you go out and play Romeo or you go out and play Hamlet, you say a little prayer to the dogs to say, please come to me, let me feel the moment let me feel it because I don't want to fake it and I'm not going to fake it if I can help it. So please let me really feel when I go out there. With Iago of course you don't have to say that prayer because he feels nothing. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. He pretends to feel things. So it's a great relief to walk out on stage knowing that you you don't have to feel a damn thing. There's a wonderful line that Iago has where he, he's in, in the beginning of his first soliloquy and He reveals himself as a psychopath in the first line, his very first soliloquy to the audience after Rodrigo leaves. And he's told Rodrigo to go sell all his lands so they can go to Cyprus together. And of course, Iago's going to take all his money. He turns to the audience and he says, thus do I ever make my fool my purse. I do this all the time. Right Now that's a psychopath admitting. I've had people argue to me that that, that, that Iago's Motivation comes from jealousy, just as Othello does, that he actually believes Othello slept with Emilia, and therefore he's going to take him down. I have a very, very talented actor friend who played it in that way, and, and even Ian McKellen says he he played it in that way. I find that completely irrational, because there are so many other things that Iago does besides what he does to Othello, what he does to Cassio, what he does to Rodrigo, what he does to Desdemona, what he does to Emilia. Yeah, yeah. These are the actions of a psychopath. So, the very first thing he does is if you were saying, What's his intention in this moment? What's his action? What's is, what's, what's he doing? He's clearing up a misunderstanding. He turns to the audience and says, Oh, just so you know, I do this all the time. Right. So, you know, thus do I ever make my fool my purse. For I mine own gained knowledge of profane if I would time expend. And here's the wonderful line with such a snipe. Now, listen to this one verse line, but for my sport. And profit, I hate the more. Now, that's one verse line, a regular verse line, incidentally. It has no turbulence in it. <laughs> for my sport and profit, I hate the more. Now, what's remarkable about that is every actor, when he gets to that line, feels that he must somehow summon up some kind of emotion for I hate the more. So you watch the actor go, uh, but for my sport and profit. Uh, <sighs> the more, right? But now you've completely destroyed the verse line. The fact of the matter is that Shakespeare is telling you his heart doesn't skip a beat. The verse doesn't skip a beat. It's like Dr. Chiltern says about Hannibal Lecter. His pulse never got above a normal rate even when he ate her tongue. So the line is very, very regular, very normal, just to clear up a misunderstanding and to set this part of it straight. I always make this kind of person my all this stuff I said to him was a lie, but this part is true. For I might own gain knowledge with profane. If I would time expend with such a snipe, but for my sport and profit, I hate the more. And it is That's thought true. to my sheets, he's done my office. I know not if it be true, but I from mere suspicion in that kind will do as if for sure. If he holds me well, the better shall my purpose work on him. So just every single line in the play adhered to and conformed with the diagnosis of psychopathy. And once once I had that, to, to Garrett's point, yes, there are people. And then the question is, what do you do about it? That was what my question. You, yeah.
1: you know, going back to your original point, making the villain human or, you know, finding that, that end to a villain, how do you find an end to Iago?
2: Well, for me, The word psychopathy and sociopathy were basically used interchangeably for the first 20 years of their, since the word sociopath kind of emerged. And then later on, psychiatrists, many of them, not all of them, there's still a lot of disagreement about this. There were a lot of psychiatrists who were unwilling to face the possibility that someone might be born essentially evil. They felt there had to be some kind of something that happened to them, you know, the behaviorist idea. And so sociopathy, the idea that trauma created the lack of conflict and empathy can be helpful. So for me, in terms of building the backstory of the character, I built a backstory in which there were traumatic events which would make Yago's nihilism and psychopathy the only rational response to what had occurred. So in that way, I was able to feel for him. But I don't know that I would have to, nor did I want the audience to or expect the audience to, because of course they knew nothing about my backstory, nor would I want them to. I do think it's possible to simply remove a sense from your palette, as it were. So if I were to play someone who was entirely blind, I would certainly have to spend an enormous amount of time with my eyes shut. Trying to negotiate the world in order to discover what that meant for me in the same way with iago i would do experiments where i would walk through the city and simply remove any sense of conscience or empathy from my thought pattern and it was very interesting because what i then saw were targets i saw for example if someone had laid their purse down. I remember I was eating in the Texas rotisserie, which you will know well, living on the Upper West Side. And a lady had put her purse down. She was sitting close to the door and she laid her purse down on the floor. And I thought how, how simple it would be to pick it up and walk out. Because there it was, simply for the table. As I was preparing for Iago, I was playing Theseus Brutus in Julius Caesar on Broadway, but I was also understudying Colin Fior, who was playing Cassius. And of course, I wanted to go on for Colum, but Colum being the actor that he is, was never going to be out of the show. In rehearsal, I'd, I'd rehearsed it, and I thought I'm, I could be a really good cast if Colum was to be out. And then I thought, were I psychopathic, what might I do about that? Well, at the time, I had, I had a prescription to Ambien, and Colum always had a nice cup of tea before the show. And I thought, were I psychopathic, there would be nothing keeping me from dropping four of those Ambien in his teeth, nothing at all. He would suddenly become overwhelmingly sleepy, even sick. I would go on. I would do this, of course, on opening night. I would go on. <laughs> I would be reviewed as the savior of the day. My Cassius would be hailed. It would never be discovered that I did it. Why would I not do that? Two reasons. Mm-hmm. conscience, Empathy. Right. So how
1: did, given all of this, and this is a nice discussion revolving around your one-man show, how did Shakespeare invent the villain? By making him human?
2: He started out with a tradition that he was handed, which was a tradition of a character called the vice in the medieval morality plays, Mm -hmm. And the vice wasn't even a human being. He was kind of personified sin, like greed or lust or envy or something like that. And uh, it was a very, very, very popular character, probably the most popular character in the plays because he spoke directly to the audience and he was anarchic. So he was funny and he was mischievous. And, you know, we all love those characters. So Shakespeare sort of handed this tradition and he begins writing his plays. In the first place he writes with the Henry VI trilogy. And at the end of the Henry VI trilogy, he's writing the character of Richard Duke of Gloucester, who will become Richard III. And he basically takes the vice character and he sort of humanizes it. And he takes the vice of ambition and he puts it in a, in a human being which is Richard Duke of Gloucester. And Richard speaks directly to the audience as the Vice does. And this of course is massively successful and requires another play. And he writes Richard III, which is massively successful and and remains to this day over 400 years later, one of the most virtuosic roles. Is that a word virtuosic? One of of the most virtuosic that an actor can play. Every actor work is solved. Wants to play Richard III to this day. That's how good the role is. Mm -hmm. He was also handed another tradition, which was the Elizabethan art of physiognomy, which was their belief that you could essentially tell an evil person by looking at them. For example, Moors, people with dark skin, were apt to be bad people. Jews were bound to be bad people. People who were disabled or deformed at birth were likely to be bad people, and uh, and bastards, of course, were likely to be bad people. And so he. He sort of handed that tradition and at the age of 26, 27, he simply uses it without thinking much about it when he writes Richard III and, and Aaron the Moor. But then as he gets a bit older and, and goes through this sort of life-changing experience with the sonnets in which he falls in love with a woman who has dark complexion, black hair, black eyes. We don't know who she was, so we don't know if she was Semitic or Romani or perhaps more, There are a lot of good ca- good candidates for her, the Dark Lady of the Sonnets. But I think it changed it. And he doesn't write after that. I mean, he doesn't write any villains for two years. He only really writes about love for two years. During that period, and in 1595, he, he writes a Midsummer Night's Dream, Romeo and Juliet, Love's Labour's Lost, The Sonnet, Venus and Adonis. And when he emerges from that crucible, and then once again kind of confronts the question of human evil, he's different. It's not the same thing. Now, he had probably been under a lot of pressure to write some kind of Jewish villain because Christopher Marlowe had had this massive success with the Jew of Malta. And Shakespeare is nothing if he's not a commercial playwright. But when he writes The Merchant of Venice, Shylock is a wholly different kind of villain. He's the first villain in history where we completely understand his motivations, even side with him and feel for him in a completely different way than one can feel for Richard Duke of Gloucester or Richard III or Barabbas or Chamberlain or Aaron the Moor. And Charlotte is completely new and astonishing. And so that is the beginning of Shakespeare really questioning his contemporaries, questioning the modern ideas about why people do bad things. And from there, he just keeps following that thread as he goes through, uh, you know, as I say, up to Claudius, giving him a full conscience uh, up to Macbeth, who is obviously not psychopathic. He's the opposite of psychopathic, right? If a psychopath is someone with no moral imagination, Macbeth has a supercharged imagination. If a psychopath is someone who has no conscience, Macbeth is tortured by conscience. He's the opposite of psychopathic. He's a person who chooses evil. And so all the way up through these plays, he keeps getting more and more and more complex in terms of creating what we now call the villain. So when we see a villain nowadays, even when we have a villain in you know, DC or Marvel comic, the fan base expects them to be complicated. They expect them to have a motivation. They expect them to have a backstory. It's not enough for someone simply to be bad. Right. And that's what Shakespeare created.
1: That's fantastic. Oh man, there's so much to talk about. Garrett, you had a question.
0: Yeah, I'm dying to ask a question. So Patrick, you've you mentioned uh, earlier about the, having an ability to control the the audience. And you also talked about appealing to the gods backstage before a performance for for that spark, that magic spark. So, I'm going to warm to my question, but I want to, I want to start it by, by... I had the opportunity to watch you play Malvolio in Twelfth Night, and I watched the performance every night, never missed it. And my impression of watching you on stage was similar. I'm coming up with a metaphor here, but it was almost like watching a master painter. And watching... you have such control over the audience that it was as if you could dip your brush in, in your magical paint and say, okay, I'm going to put a little chortle here. And I'm going to put a guffaw here, and then there's going to be a belly laugh and from night to night, you had such control i felt I felt perfectly confident that you knew exactly how to subtly control the audience to to that to that degree and so my question is is twofold: first of all, what do you do when that abandons you? What do you do when that when that eludes you <laughs> and the other control is who? taught you what to do when that eludes you and what did you
2: learn well look i think i don't surf but i've watched surfing and i think the most apt metaphor is surfing so you know i'm so gratified by your saying that you feel i have control i don't feel i have control any more than a surfer has control i'm letting the wave do what it wants to do and i'm trying to stay on top of the wave. And when it doesn't happen, that's like falling off of the wave. And it was interesting. I read last year, maybe you read this same thing. They did, uh, they actually hooked an audience in London up to a, an electrocardiogram, an entire audience. So they all were wired and they were watching a performance. And what happened to their hearts was within 30 minutes of the beginning of the show, this was a University of London study. Within 30 minutes at the beginning of the show, all the hearts began to beat in unison. Now, that's something that is shocking on the one hand, but for most actors, unsurprising on the other hand. Because we all know that the reason we call it an audience, instead of using some plural word to describe the group of people, is the fact that they become a thing. They become a unit. They become an individual in a way. They become a person. And so once you get the feel of that person, you can sense where they want to be. Now, you, can't, you shouldn't always let them who they want to be who they want to be. <laughs> uh, Bob, by, by their very nature, are unruly. Groups of people, by their very nature, are unruly. An audience less so because they have an agreement coming in. I mean, they've all agreed, for example, to all sit in the same direction and face the stage. That's right. a big agreement, which, is, which establishes conformity right at the beginning. And then they have all kinds of other agreements that they've made with the actors. I recently did my one-man show in a socially distant space for an audience of about 30 people who were all sitting at least eight feet from each other in an outdoor setting. And I happened to be doing Malvolio in that show. And I can tell you, I didn't get a single laugh now what do you do and, well the people were also all, almost all over the age of 70. now what do you do in that circumstance you just trust you trust that you're doing the work and that well, i had the great gift of playing a comic character for two years on the road which meant i was playing lumiere and beauty and the beast in the first national tour and the character is the sort of comic engine of the play So virtually every line is a laugh line. And an actor becomes quite addicted to those laughs. And an actor can begin to assign blame or feel guilt or shame if he or she doesn't get the laughs that he got the night before. But the wonderful thing about being on tour is audiences really are geographically different. An audience in Phoenix, Arizona, laughs entirely differently than an audience in Kansas City, Missouri. An audience in Portland, Oregon laughs entirely differently than an audience in the Midwest or in the East. So I just got used to, I got used to the end. And of course, every every physical house is different. Yeah. There are unified spaces where the audience all sits together. And there are spaces where the audience is all broken up into little pods. So, for example, at the Masonic Theater in Detroit, the audience is First of all, they they rope off half the theater because it's something like 5,000 seats. And so you've got an enormous empty space anyway. And then the audience is sitting in all these little pods of about 100 each with rows between them. It's very, very, very difficult to get a laugh in that house because the last thing anybody in the world wants to do is laugh when no one else is laughing. We're all very afraid of standing out. And so they don't laugh. At a theater like the Gamage Auditorium in Phoenix, which was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, it's completely unified. The audience is, there are no aisles. You come in on the sides where the doors are and there are no aisles whatsoever. There, it's very easy to get a laugh because the audience is one unit. So I've learned to to listen enough to stay on top of the wave, but to not judge and to not feel anything when... When they're not laughing. Having said that, doing Malvolio for people without a single laugh, and that was—I <laughs> had injured my shoulder at the beginning. I had torn my tendon, done a complete tear of my tendon at the very top of that show. So I was in excruciating pain, and they weren't laughing at all. So that wasn't pleasant. Well, I would say <laughs> the, eight, the eight feet separation
1: probably was not a good thing for laughter.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: And then to, to add to the pain of your shoulder—that doesn't yeah. sound like. A- and performance
2: yeah and then it's and then it's so funny because you'll have I like, the the producer who's very very smart and, and a great director, but nevertheless saying you know well you may want to you may want to find some internal cuts from malvolio, and I'm like, you know what, watch it with an audience first. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> I don't think you can gut malvolio too much at all
0: Jim, I think we have time for one more, possibly two more questions. I know a question I'd like to ask. do you have another question?
1: well, yes. So we've just come through a very interesting time in our world. Well, we haven't come through it completely, but we're we're getting towards the end of it where it was uh, there was a villain involved. We don't have to go into that part of it. But I think coming out of this turbulent time with this strange psych- psychopath in, in the head of this country, there's going to be an incredible theater renaissance. I think that there's going to be an explosion of creativity. It might not be until 2022. Right. Um, but I do think that we're going to see an explosion. What do, you, what do you see for the next six months or year or moving into the future?
2: Well, first of all, I want to just piggyback on what you said in terms of the villain of, of these events of um, January 2021. There is no question in my mind that Donald Trump is a psychopath. That it, you can go online, yes. if you're listening to this, you can go online and, and just put in Dr. Robert Hare, psychopath, Uh, checklist dr robert hare was the one who created the checklist for identifying identifying a psychopath and you will look at it and you will be astonished because it's a list of over a dozen characteristics any three or four of which might indicate psychopathy and donald trump has every single one of them everyone and not in small measure psychopathy is a form of malignant narcissism so when we were talking about iago What causes Iago to do what he does is the, is the narcissistic injury. The first narcissistic injury, which is not being promoted and Othello marrying Desdemona. So he's displaced in two ways from being the, as far as his, his self-image is all tied up in being Othello's most important person. And he's displaced in two ways at the beginning of the show. And that displacement has to be rectified. And so he becomes the most important person in Othello's life by the end of the play. He achieves his objective, but so yes, Donald Trump is a psychopath number two i don 't think that 's the main villain in the story. Shakespeare was really clear about one thing from the beginning of his career to the end, so starting in the Henry VI plays with Jack Cade, moving through Julius Caesar and to Coriolanus, he was always clear that the energy of the mob was the most dangerous thing, and that they were fickle, that they could be manipulated and he saw that so clearly donald trump is nothing without his mob and without his enablers plays (laughs) like king lear and the winter's tale are very much about the enabling of the tyrant you know the problem paulina has in the winter's tale is that none of the men will stand up to leontes they could shut it down right at the beginning camillo Antigonists. They could shut this down, but they don't. Jeffrey Wilson talks about that in his book. What's
1: that? Have you read read the Jeffrey Wilson book on Trump, the Shakespeare and Trump?
2: I'm just starting to read it now. I haven't read it yet.
1: He talks about the mob. He talks exactly what you're saying. So that, I think that's the main
2: villain. And that's why these actions that the social media companies have taken, far from being censorship of constitutionally protected speech, are essential steps in terms of restoring democracy. These People have always existed. When I was a kid, I would go to the state fair and, and the John Burke Society had set up their little booth and they would and they would have all these terrible lies about, you know, the Rothschilds trying to rule the world and all kinds of anti-Semitic stuff. And and but they were isolated. They didn't have a platform where they could spread this stuff to everybody. And so I think it's a it, it's an essential step to isolate people and say absolutely you can have free speech you just can't have it on this platform you can't have you know and yeah so this is good this is really good news about right now second part of your question was your real question but i've now forgotten it it's what's what's going to happen in the theater world it's going to be an explosion oh, what's creativity happen- i think i hope um i believe the theater world will as you say there'll be a rent i know that all i want to do once things open up is go to London, go to Paris, go to Prague, go to Disney World, go to the theater, go to a concert, go to a museum. I think you're right. It's going to be like the Roaring Twenties. That will create an appetite for a lot of work. What that work is going to be like, what new plays are going to be, I'm not sure. There's a dangerous kind of self-censorship going on in in the theater right now. And I hope that these events and this pause button will put that into perspective and, and that we'll stop Censoring ourselves, and that we'll begin to stop writing plays for people who agree with us and begin posing ourselves real questions that we don't have the answers to. Shakespeare never wrote a play in which he had the answer to the problem he posed or the problems he posed. I just taught a 12 week course on King Lear, and the question at the heart of King Lear really is a question about nihilism it's about whether or not life has any meaning it's about whether hierarchical structures are necessary or valuable or whether they're more dangerous than they are conducive to good hierarchical structures in in government and in family and those were all questions that he didn't have the answers to and so he's able to very even-handedly go back and forth and by the end of it you're in the middle of this great question i was going to say dilemma but it's more than two points of view so you're you're in the middle of this great predicament and that's the case with every play he's ever written so that's why you can produce henry V as a during world war ii as a pro-war play or during the vietnam war as an anti-war play because it will it will like mercury it will sort of move around your ideas of course it's a play about war it's not a play against or for war it's a play about war about its glories and about its dangers and about its horrors, all of that. I hope that we'll see more of that kind of playwriting as opposed to a politically based kind of playwriting in which the playwright believes he or she has an antidote for a problem. If only we, the audience, would agree with their point of view, things would be better. I find that very tiresome. It's-
1: didactic, right? Garrett, what was your question? So
0: sort of to wrap things up, audiences are going to soon get a chance to see you online streaming in your one-person show, All the Devils Are Here, How Shakespeare Invented the Villain. And they can also take a deeper dive into your work by checking out your podcast, The Patrick Page Podcast, which I tried to say that three times fast and, and failed. But, I know, right? <laughs> um But it's 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 fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Uh I wanted to ask about the Learning Shakespeare series. You have no. a new one that's that's just begun or just beginning. Tell us about that.
2: As I say, I did it I did twelve weeks on learning. King Lear. We do it online. And I've always felt that one couldn't teach Shakespeare without teaching acting, because after all, Shakespeare's works are plays. So one has to understand the mechanics of acting in order to understand a character or what a character is doing. And so when the pandemic happened, and I was being asked to teach acting online a lot, and I felt I couldn't. I have I have an acting studio in New York where I teach acting in person, but I was I felt I couldn't continue because what I teach is so based on being in the room and seeing if the actor is connected to and responsive with the acting partner. And that's impossible to tell in a Zoom session. And I thought what I can teach is how to read a play. I can teach what plays mean. I can teach how to read them. I can essentially teach text. So that's what I did with King Lear. And then I thought, well, what play should I do next? And I said, well, well, let's do Hamlet. Part of the reasoning around it is to try to take plays that are so large that they can somehow be, if not of comfort, at least provide some meaning under, in the current crisis. So now we're doing Hamlet. We did the first day on Sunday. I teach for two hours at a time because to teach longer on Zoom seems to be uh, produced diminishing returns. And I have 90 students, 35 of which are reading the play aloud with me and the remainder which are auditing. So it's been very successful. We had over two thirds of the people who took Learning Lear sign up for Learning Hamlet. So that's a sign that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. And for me, it's it's a great I love it more than anything because I always want to, you know, it's like if you were a bird watcher and you're walking through the forest with somebody, you just want to point and say, look at that there. Do you see how amazing that is? Have you ever noticed that? If you're a docent in a museum, you want to point out, you see what Rembrandt is doing there. Oh, no, I don't. Well, here's what he's doing and here's why. And the the ability to, after 40 years of studying the plays, is more to be able to say to people look look at this look what's happening there look at how they share this line look at how that shakespeare's indicated a pause there look at how he's setting up this pattern of meaning with the, with these various words look at how this line is completely filled with vowels and monosyllabic and what does that do and what does that what does that do to you in a in a visceral way and why is that done and to open the plays up in that way and then also to find, and frankly, it's a, it, it's a way of, of me venting some of my frustration about how poorly the plays are done most of the time. Because the fact of the matter is, you know, any of us can count on one hand the number of really good productions of Shakespeare we've seen. But we keep going. We keep trying. We're, we're, we're such masochists. You know, so we keep going We say, oh, I'll go to this production of Hamlet. Maybe, maybe this time somebody will understand why Polonius is doing what he's doing. <laughs> I'll go to this production of uh, King Lear and maybe, maybe somebody will understand Goneril and Regan instead of playing them as two-dimensional stepsisters. You know, and you keep going in these hopes that you'll see the play realized so for me to be able to say, "Here's what I think is going on here," which is obviously completely subjective, but based on a lot of objective reading and and data, is 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 wonderful.
1: I, I want to take the class.
2: Yeah, you can drop in anytime.
1: Patrick, this has been a delight to talk to you. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Great to talk to you.
0: Bye-bye. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. I'm Garrett Vandermeer, and I'm Jim Elliott, and thank you for listening to the State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.